With so much love and respect, welcome to the Luke Adler Healing Podcast, where we turn pain into power and get down to what really matters, the love we share and the love we grow. This is for those who want to get intimate with life's living edge and use every instance as an opportunity for deepening and connection, to make life a work of art, painted by passion and fueled by a longing for a more beautiful world, ultimately creating space for all that we are. I'm your host, Luke Adler. Let's get it. I just wanted to ask you briefly about your history. I know that you and I, you know, we met up talking a little bit about some of the similarity of our upbringings. But yeah, I just wanted to hear again, a little summary of how did you get to where you are right now? Yeah, thank you. This is fun to to hang with you and, and to, you know, get mic'd up and do the real studio action. Yeah, I, I think part of, of like being drawn to you in, in a budding friendship is that we have a similar background around meditation and growing up around kind of ashram culture and different traditions, but familiarity with that world. And uh, my upbringing was kind of a traditional childhood in a certain sense. My father was raised Jewish. My mother was raised in kind of a Protestant environment. Prior to my birth, my parents were TM meditation teachers. But well, when I was born, you know, the pressure of raising children, they just defaulted to what they knew. So, we were going to I think I went to a Baptist preschool and a Catholic kindergarten. The Catholic kindergarten, the name of it was Precious Blood, which scared, scared the hell out of me. I was like, <laughs> I have to go to Precious Blood? Like, are they going to take my blood? You know, it was really yeah. terrifying. Anyway, the first seven, eight years, I was raised in this kind of Christian environment. We didn't go to church regularly, but on the holidays. And then we moved um, from the Palm Springs area closer to Los Angeles, where there was actual practicing Jews. So we started going to temple and we went to like, you know, Hebrew school and, and Sunday school. And I found both experiences to be utterly boring. You know, culturally they were interesting, but there was nothing really vibratory there, nothing spiritual. It was just kind of this chore. And then like around 92, my parents got back into meditation and it was kind of a miraculous story, but they started taking me and my siblings to a meditation satsang community in Santa Monica. And within a couple of these chanting meditation evenings, I had a, just a full awakening experience. And I think what was fascinating is I wasn't looking for it. I had no interest really at all. It was just people chanting these Sanskrit mantras. And it was kind of fun. The kids were allowed to run around. And I remember even right now, I'm standing in front of this picture of a, of a teacher from India, a woman, and I'm chanting this prayer in Hindi. I don't know what the words mean. And this energy at the base of my spine just starts to rip open and it pierces what I later would learn was each chakra. So, it went up into my abdomen, into my solar plexus. And when the energy hit my heart, it was like kind of snaking up my body. I started to cry, but it was a sobbing that I'd never experienced before. It wasn't that I was in pain. It was this incredible feeling of relief. It's as if I had been searching for something I didn't know I was searching for, for eons. And I had found it. Like I had come home. 
this unbelievable experience of homecoming, which I would later learn was an experience that people on the meditative path could have, where you realize the essence of your being. And to go from a 13-year-old who was, you know, I was trying to find marijuana, I was trying to date girls, I was trying to get into drugs, to all of a sudden (laughs) discovering the nature of the universe, it in an instance shifted my mind, my body, my outlook on life at my face and at my chest and thinking, God, you are so ugly. It's an experience I'd have pretty regularly. Like, God, I, I wish I was better looking. I wish I was more handsome. Like, it was my sense of myself was I was ugly and stupid and not good at sports and hadn't achieved any of the social status that a 12, 13-year-old boy should be achieving, right? There, my classmates had these things. The girls liked them. They were good at soccer and they were popular. And I was none of those things. So, in an instance, to go from this really demeaning perspective to myself to one that was really the opposite, it was astounding. And there was no reference for it in my culture. No one had ever spoken about this. It just was happening. And that was the beginning of a spiritual awakening and realization that continued until I was 18, 19 with great intensity. Experiences that were similar to that, but they were different, multifaceted, more nuanced. And then the journey of finding a career began, and that was a whole nother part of my evolution. And then you know, getting married and children and this is more and more learning and the the path has shifted tremendously. But those first four or five years were very dramatic. They were very iconic in the sense, like if you've read Autobiography of a Yogi or Play of Consciousness by Muktananda, I I was having some of those kinds of experiences. Some of the stuff they had were beyond what I experienced for sure. But I was having something maybe a little milder in some cases. I don't want to put myself on their level. It's not it's not like that. I awakened to my nature. And my spiritual path began. It wasn't that I completed anything. It was just I was able to begin doing the work of burning the wood, if you will, or burning my karma, so to speak. That's such a cool story. I love hearing that. And I mean, my own history with growing up in a similar background, different guru, different practice, very similar thing. I think perhaps because my parents were much more devoted to it, it's a bit more of like the orthodoxy of my childhood. And so I have some perhaps more baggage around it. I've had some of those experiences as well. And it's inspiring to me to hear about you having those experiences and and having them being what sounds like such a positive intervention in your life. It's actually really interesting for me. I'd love to hear you talk for a little bit about just get a bit more into what was that like to be in your young adolescence. And it sounds like you were trying to find your own way, like as a as a boy turning into a man, some of the expectations in your culture, and then just taking like a massive left turn towards this more spiritual thing. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about those expectations and how you were feeling and how you changed. That's a really great question. The thing that shifted pretty quickly because I started meditating and doing these practices is that my mind became clearer and my ability to focus increased. So kind of prior to this experience, my reading comprehension wasn't that great and it was starting to improve. But after these experiences, all of a sudden when I would read content, I could remember it for the first time. And and that part of my learning hadn't clicked yet. It was weird. I was like seven, eighth grade and I didn't, it was really hard to comprehend what I was reading. So my abilities and capacities improved dramatically pretty quickly. I got better at sports. I got better at school. One of the 
adages in City Yoga, or one of the core teachings is to see the divine in each other, to see God in each other. And having experienced it so deeply within myself, it was very easy to see it in others. And so, what that engendered is because I would be looking at you, Arjuna, or a friend with that kind of regard and care, it would evoke their care and their admiration and their sense, I guess they felt safe, they felt seen. So I became very well liked. So I went from being very unpopular to very popular. And and so like my fortunes changed in a way. It was interesting is that, you know, at least in some of these Eastern paths, they say that, you know, I guess it's not true for everyone, but once you awaken, the universe reorganizes itself to help you fulfill your desires or support you so that you can complete the journey. You can keep doing this work and serve others. And that has truly been my experience is that if I'm, as long as I'm focused on healing and serving, even at that age, I didn't know it, but all these other desires I had, they aligned so that I could keep doing my inner work. And that was the case. But more than that, I had an uncommon fire for the path. And in Sanskrit, they call that mumukshutva, this Sanskrit word, which means the burning desire for freedom. And it was, it was freakishly strong in me, even compared to my peers in City Yoga. I was just a devout worshiper of, of the light itself. It was a hunger inside. You know, I'd be waking up 16, 17, and I'd chant these Sanskrit prayers for 30, 40 minutes in the dark. And I'd meditate and I'd go to school. No one was making me do it. You know, my parents were like, this is what a good yogi does. It was just, they were, I, it was just me. I guess it was kind of weird in a certain sense to go from being so entrenched in insecurity to feeling so free so quickly and having that experience of freedom just grow and grow and grow. It got a little harder. The transition from, from high school to college was painful and challenging. It's kind of an interesting area I haven't spoken about a lot, but at least into high school, it was very protected and and it worked really well. Yeah, yeah tell, tell me more about that. So what did you come up against in college? Yes, yeah, I've never really reflected on it until this, this question is interesting that, you know, I, I think my life was so protected and insulated and to go from this environment where I didn't have a meditation center, I didn't have my family and familiar friends around and I was discovering like girls in a bigger way and sex for the first time and these bigger experiences that were, I guess, like next level initiations of becoming a, an adult. It was scary. It was scary to like manage my money. And even though I was insulated from that to some degree, living in the dorms, interacting with girls was seemed riskier. Like my hormones and desire came on in, in a bigger way. It was intimidating to feel like love and passion. Coming from this perspective of being really drawn spiritually, I was now having these experiences of like, oh, here's sexuality and here's desires not being fulfilled. Like I, I wanted, I was trying to make the soccer team at UC Santa Barbara. I was trying to get into the College of Creative Studies and I didn't have the kind of support around me that I had in high school. And I was kind of fumbling a little bit on how to navigate these systems that when I look back, it was like if I had an advocate or someone to say, oh no, Luke, say this or do this, like I would have navigated these problems, but I was sorting them out for myself with no reference points. I just didn't have the acumen or the savvy to ask the right questions. So I struggled. There was, there was, there was resistance, there was depressive moments, there was disappointment. I was having some human experiences, you know, that were, that were unpleasant, they were hard. I was having them, you know, alone without my parents, without this kind of bigger tribe of people that I had in high school. So it was hard. Even with all that spiritual support, it was like, oh, I feel alone, more alone in this 
bigger world. And this was just college, you know, it wasn't like I'm out there in the, in the big transition of adulting, you know. One of the things that highlights to me is I think a lot of spiritual teenagers will have this experience where like they'll have this, you know, these experiences of connection and love and, and wisdom and whatever. But then we're not divorced from our character arc of still having to make it in the world, right? And still having to like be productive in the time that we're living. And so there are some of these experiences that feel really timeless and beautiful. But then we're back in the soup with everyone else and, and trying to figure it out. That's part of what's so interesting about the spiritual journey is that there are these aspects that feel so universal and timeless. And then we have to find a way to play those out in the particular time and culture and place that we are. And sometimes it doesn't feel so congruent. It takes distance and perspective for us to see how those struggles or those so-called normal day-to-day -day experiences well, like a really crucial part of our experience, maybe even a crucial part of anchoring our spiritual experience or humbling us, or I almost think of it as sweeping the dojo. That's such an important part of martial arts, cleaning the space, being humble, being diligent, building that kind of character. This is such an interesting conversation because I've never felt into some of these nuances. And so I left UC Santa Barbara after my first year, one, because I had this really disappointing love experience that was devastating to me in a way. And I had these unfulfilling experiences around soccer and this kind of collegiate academic thing. And so I decided I'm, I, I can't justify my parents paying for this school. I, I need to take some time. And where I went was I went back to the ashram in New York. And it was interesting, just this conversation that like, I felt so challenged by this first dance in the world that I was like, I need to go back to the womb where everything's controlled and I can meditate and I can feel safe again. And I did that and I had a wonderful experience. It was lovely and I, and I got to have some worldly experience, but it was very controlled and contained. And then I decided to go to school, back to school at University of Oregon, which really wasn't what I wanted to do. But I went back there because it was where my parents were. It was where some of my friends were. It was again, this kind of safe place. And I don't think I really recognize that trajectory till this conversation, to be honest with you, Arjuna. I think I told myself I wanted to go back there so I can study and focus and it's raining in Eugene and it's not distracting. But I think from a felt sense, I wanted to come back here because I just felt safer. And if I had, you know, again, a little more perspective, I might've wanted to go to Berkeley or, you know, an Ivy League school, like somewhere to really push myself. But that wasn't the, the need that was present there. It was more... Um, this need of safety because I, I had the first experience of kind of getting burned a little bit. That was hard for me. And in a certain sense, I didn't want to continue to get burned. You know, I didn't want to continue to experience getting hurt. So I came back here and inevitably, you know, I got hurt again. <laughs> I moved in with some, some folks who were not really nice and actually kind of made fun of my spiritual spirituality. And that was super hurtful. And you know, I ended up having this really kind of hermitage life here in Eugene. I would run every day, I'd chant, meditate, do my homework, did really well in school, but I wasn't that interested in it. And then my last year, I, I fell in love with someone, beautiful experience, my first kind of adult, young adult love. And that ended in this, you know, tremendous heartbreak. And again, that kind of sent me into this, into actually a really deep and true depression. So I graduated University of Oregon and I was flattened. I had never experienced anything of that sort. I mean, I was stuck in the doldrums of loss. 
looking back at it now, it was like I couldn't, I, I guess I couldn't outrun these experiences of disappointment, of loss. I was living with my parents again at the time and this was like six months into this depression and I was like eating my oatmeal and I just start crying spontaneously, you know, like, I don't know, for the hundredth time. My mom comes over to me to soothe me and my dad says, don't touch him, leave him alone. And I, and I just felt like, what the fuck, you fucking asshole. The whole moment got really quiet. It was like a matrix moment. And I realized, holy shit, he's creating this space for me to pick myself up. That was the only way I was going to get out of this depression. And I got it. I got it within a few seconds. Oh, if I keep being soothed, I'm going to stay here in this puddle of self-pity. And it, it, it became a practice where I, I'd have to discipline myself from not thinking about this woman. Like my mind would go to her and I'd have to pull it back and just say, no, there's nothing that these thoughts are, there's nowhere, these, there's nowhere good these thoughts are taking me. And it took about a year, but gradually I, I pulled myself out of this depression and I got a job and I kind of remembered my desire to serve and I, and I found my way with the help of, of synchronicity and the universe to Chinese medicine school. And that began this path of expressing my spiritual passion into the world and learning the tools and learning the language and learning the science and developing a, a way to serve other people. And I guess as we're having this conversation, like really learning to help people navigate what I was navigating, which is pain and loss and disappointment, devastation in my own way, wanting to learn how to share that with people, share those skills, in some ways learn those skills. I had spiritual tools, but I didn't have any psycho-spiritual tools. I didn't have any psycho-emotional tools, not ones that were very developed. I love hearing about this and I definitely want to get more into your your work, but I just want to pause and reflect on that moment with your mom and your dad. I think that's such a key point where it's almost like an archetypal moment where your, your mother's being really nurturing and your father's being really like, pick yourself up, kid. What I'm hearing you say is that there was something about that kind of archetypally man energy that was really crucial for you in that moment. Yeah, you're right. My dad started meditating when he was 16, but when I got into the onto the path, he'd say this phrase to me, Luke, get out of your head. Get out of your head and get in the real world. He wasn't totally supportive of this meditative work I was doing, which is weird because he was doing that stuff when he was my age. But I think he saw that I was I was really anchored in the transcendental and not very present on earth. And I think, you know, he being a man of both worlds and you know, having success in both worlds, the spiritual and the material, he knew there was something that I needed to learn. And I think he was afraid in some ways of like this, you know, very sensitive son that he had that didn't yet have the the chops to be in the world. You know, looking back, he was very tolerant in a way, but I can see him seeing like, oh, my son is not, he, if he's getting collapsed here, like, wow, he's going to have a tough time in this world. And I can say that he was right because the world is harsh and it's hard, and it doesn't necessarily support the sweetness all the time. There needs to be kind of a balanced approach. So that was a big moment and a big theme in my relationship with my father of kind of being criticized around my sensitivity, around my, my spirituality, and in a more archetypal way, him challenging me was me learning to stand up to challenge and to keep persisting when I was met with confusion or I was met with disappointment. And, and as far as learning to become that, he was my teacher and continued to be for quite a long time and, until I 
got some level of competency, maybe some mastery. But that was his, you know, his great gift to me and my siblings is to keep persisting when met with adversity. It didn't come natural to me. It was one of the more painful lessons I've had to learn. It was very, very kind of not online until I began to flex it like a muscle, really. There's something about the truth, even when it hurts, it resonates. Like I, I think back on certain experiences I've had where a relationship has ended and as painful as it is, there's something true about it that allows me to abide by it and not fight or yearn or try to stay in the relationship. Even though there's there's often like a yearning to you know want to keep it alive, there's a stronger sensibility of it is over. We have come to our ending, you know. I'm really interested in this question of how do men approach and integrate sensitivity? I would say there's a lot of men's work out there, which is teaching men how to work with their assertive aspect, which is also important. That's an important part of it. But I think the part of it that I find more interesting and that I feel is perhaps less explored is that kind of sensitive and feeling side of it. It's also easy to be like, oh, it's okay, kiddo, you're a sensitive man and like, that's fine and that should be celebrated and it should, it definitely should. But what I love about this message is that's that's just one part of being a mature adult is being comfortable in your sensitive side and knowing when you're like, wow, I just got leveled by this relationship or this experience and I do actually need to like, I need to mourn it. I need to have a period of grieving or a period of withdrawing. It sounds like you reached a point where being in that sensitive space was not what you needed anymore. You weren't growing anymore. I feel like part of this work is finding better language to describe what these archetypes are. Finding deeper ways to understand these energies. Because a lot of people just be like, oh yeah, that was a masculine energy. And I'm like, what does that even mean, right? What is that? What are we really talking about here? And I keep coming back to this idea of these mature adult energies, regardless of your gender, regardless of anything, these different manifestations of how we can be. And so it sounds to me like your dad in his own way was helping you to discover an integrated forward moving energy. That's really core to the work that I want to do is finding that meeting and that integration. When I think about some of the male role models that touch me the most, I feel like I see an integration. I see the ability for kindness and assertiveness and fierceness and tenderness and resolve, all of those things existing in the same space and being able to draw upon those and kind of have a wisdom to know which one to bring to a situation or even which one to bring to yourself in that moment in your life. In my mind, again, that's just part of uh, not even just being a man, but just being an integrated adult. I wanted to talk a bit about your core level awakening work because that's how I came to meet you. So I'd love it if you could explain a bit like how did, how did that come about and what are you helping people to grow into with that work? Yeah, about seven, eight years ago, I was teaching mostly meditation and breath work. So I was teaching people how to track into their interior through meditative work and navigate these subtle spaces and deepen their identity and greater proximity to their core essence, their highest self, if you will. And then the breath work stuff I learned was had a more shamanic twist to it. So it was kind of about, it was the way I was working with the psycho-spiritual content with the theme of healing the inner child or, or some kind of wounded or trauma experience 
experience seem to really get at some of the stuck accretions in the body and purge them out as a deep catharsis. But what I found is that myself and the people I was working with, you know, when they were confronted with a disappointing experience, a loss, a grievance, that the reflex would be, oh, I got to go do breath work to clear this pain. And I was like, cool, I guess that this is the path. You meditate and you deepen your awareness and then you release your pain when you accumulate some pain or you become aware of that limiting your expression. And then I found some of my patients and clients, they were also going to psychotherapy. And I was thinking, well, why are they doing therapy when they are doing breath work and things like that? And I realized there was still a need to understand their wounding and an even greater need to then in real time with their partner or parent or sibling, be able to have the skills like you're talking about. How do I in the moment find my dynamic, most authentic response to forward love, opening, connection, growth? And just purging your pain and deepening your awareness doesn't teach you that. It just teaches you to deepen your awareness and purge your pain. Psychotherapy gets a little closer because you gain some cognitive understanding and you can kind of think your way into comprehending your dynamic with your father or your brother, but still falls short of the felt experience of when I'm with this person who has hurt me, disappointed me, how do I be fully with my hurt without suppressing it? You know, if I suppress it, then I have to live on top of it and kind of pretend like things are okay, which doesn't feel connective or authentic. And if I react, you know, fuck you, you fucking asshole, you hurt me, you piece of shit, that's not fully empowered either. That might be a good step if I've never set a boundary, but that doesn't kind of necessarily lead to a holistic resolution. And if I'm very kind of sweet, like, you know, I think Robert Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, if I'm just kind of a nice guy, then I'm not addressing the elephant in the room or I'm not being direct enough. So, there was this work that was calling to me. I didn't know what it was. And then I discovered more kind of deeper psycho-spiritual or shadow work that had more of an integral approach, a spinoff of Ken Wilber and some of the more crazy wisdom traditions of the 70s, like Adidas Samraj Guru, Trumpa Rinpoche. Like these guys were pushing the envelope of consciousness by doing super unconventional things. And what has become in our day known more as expressive or experiential therapy where you're not just talking about your problem, you're feeling deeply into where it lives in you in a more dynamic way and you're expressing it. And that often leads to breakthrough, catharsis, but that catharsis is connected. So you're aware of what's releasing as it's releasing and you gain ground within yourself of awareness and new behaviors that aren't strategies, they're organic expressions of your own being that are freed back into participation with society, with relationships. So you gain agency around clean anger, around deep, poignant compassion, around healthy sexuality, around healthy shame for that matter, around a healthy experience of fear. I was listening to one of my teachers speak in the last few days and he was talking about negative emotion, that in the yoga path, like you're trying to purge negative emotion. I was like, I don't conceive of emotion as negative anymore. I think it's kind of an older way of talking about it. It's, there's nothing negative about emotion. Emotion is just sensation. It's just another experience to get to know, not to get away from or get rid of, like that somehow freedom means you're never anger. 
angry or sad or want to have sex. Like that's not what freedom is. Freedom is the freedom to be with any of those experiences and still have choice and awareness and discernment and an adult perspective. So there's not a need to turn away from it. So I, I dove head first into that work because I realized it was a swath of inner work I hadn't really explored. And I've been going pretty hard ever since, you know, seven, eight years with real diligence before I had done kind of, I'd say milder work. It's kind of like a deep meditative experience, but there's a fully awakened state into your own wounding of your identity. And in a certain sense, it's not necessarily manually putting it together, but with an awakened trajectory of energy, having your karma be resolved with more consciousness. And it's, it's challenging work. I really enjoy it, but it does take a lot of energy. It takes a lot of focus and a lot of presence. And I can only do so much before I'm kind of worn out. And I'm like, okay, that was good. Now I need to do work that's a little more restorative. But I, I really, it's important because it, it helps increase the quality and skillfulness in relationship. And what I've learned more in the last few years is that our lessons are tied together. In fact, most of our learning is totally integrated. So for me to really grow, I have to include you in that process. If I isolate in more of like a, a, a yogic self-sufficient sense, there's some achievement that can occur, but it's exponentially more powerful and challenging if you and I heal together. There's something that accelerates the process when both of our consciousness dilate and we go into our inner being together and awaken. I've healed and grown through things I just couldn't even imagine were even in me and let alone possible in the last six, seven years. So yeah, the core level awakening work to me is absolutely crucial. Not necessarily my version of it, but work like that. And then some kind of meditative work is I think very important amongst, along with, you know, diet and nutrition and the whole thing, you know. There's so much there, right? I feel like we could just spend many episodes talking more about what comes up in that. One of the things that was really standing out to me was what the teacher learns from teaching. That's been coming up for me a lot. A number of people in my life have been coming forward and asking me to teach them drumming, which is something that I that I know how to do and love. And what I notice is that when I'm drumming along with my students, I'm like, oh, here's an opportunity for me to get better at this thing. And so I'm learning as they're learning. But I also love how, and my experience of doing the session with you was it really did, it felt like an integrated a synthesis of a lot of different methods. It's one of the benefits of the time that we live in is that we're able to take so many influences and put them together in powerful ways. Just another opportunity that we have in this time to take some of the benefit among the, the confusion and the overwhelm of the modern era. But I also love how you're really talking about embodying the work. And I think that this is something that especially men, in my experience, struggle with, is really embodying emotion or embodying a process. As men, we're not encouraged to embody emotion. Uh, there are certain emotions that it's kind of okay for us to embody, like rage, right, or anger. Or, you know, there are certain ways in which we're encouraged to be very embodied through athletics, through our sexual exploits. But I think that there's so much missing from that level of embodiment when we're not really coming from a place of emotional self-knowing. In my mind, that's some of the most important work for men to be doing right now, yeah. is, is to be feeling into what's my emotional state, what's my body telling me, 
how is my particular suffering or just my experience, not just suffering. Probably a lot of people come to the work because of suffering, but then are able to discover just um, what's the opportunity to be in my body? What's my body telling me? What are my sensations telling me? And then to use that as a springboard of, of self-knowing. Because you know, it's one of my beliefs that one of the deepest missions of embodiment is just being embodied. Yeah, <laughs> right? just like that. It, it sounds so like tautological or simple, but I think that this is something that, especially like in the contemporary era, I feel like is easy to forget. We're just here to be in our bodies and we're here to be in our lives. And there's something so simple and fundamental about that. People want for that to be another meaning, right? Or they want for that to be like some grand mission. And I feel like embodiment is enough. That's enough of a mission. Understanding self is enough of a mission. And I think that other meaningful action or other, yeah, if you're on a spiritual path, I feel like really comes out of that. It comes out of that place. And it's a lot more able to flow naturally. I appreciate that aspect of your work. I've done a lot of therapy and I've always felt like a lack of the embodiment aspect. I'll get a massage and like, that's awesome, right? I'm feeling into my body, but I'm not actually speaking and synthesizing and putting it all together. You said something really powerful and beautiful that embodiment itself could be enough. And I want to highlight that because what comes with actually being able to arrive in your body, we think of that. Oh, that that sounds like a really easy thing. You know, I just, I, okay, I, I'm aware of my my fingertips right now and my toes, and, I, and I'm here in my body. And it's like, wait, wait a second, it's not actually that simple or that easy in the sense that you and I are describing to become embodied, or rather, more and more embodied, which means to be able to feel that I'm in a body and feel the different spaces within my body. We're talking about an ephemeral concept because at least from the energetic standpoint, there's the physical body and then there's the soul, which isn't physical at all. It embodies the physiology. It comes into being. And we know when there's trauma, this aspect of the soul that's kind of related to body awareness, it can leave. It can kind of come apart. It can get behind you or get above you or just disperse if something unsafe is happening. There's many accounts of this. If you've reviewed anything traumatic you've been through, a lot of people say, I feel numb. Car accidents, really common. People feel sometimes elation for the first days or a week after a car accident. And then two weeks later is when they feel the whiplash, is when they feel the back pain. As the sensibility of the embodied self comes back into physical form, there's this arriving at something painful that's felt in the nerves, in the vascular tissue. So it's not so simple. And we, because we get used to our state, we can manage living with various traumas in the system that have certain numb areas or cold areas. Literally, they're numb or they're cold. We're just simply not aware of them. We get used to it and we think, oh, I'm embodied. There's always more to integrate into. There's always more nuance to feel into it. And why that is enough is it's a huge mission to pursue. And that when we are embodied, when it's kind of safe to come home, not just spiritually to the truth, but physically to the here and now, to be able to bring your full presence into this body 
and have online all of the vectors of emotion. Not just if you're a man, I only get to move anger through my body. Or if I'm a woman, I only get to be kind of sweet and kind. Or if I'm going to be angry, I can only be bitchy, but I can't be firm. Um, and God forbid any of the genders actually feel shame in a clean way. Right. So you have all of these vectors. Forget the concept of emotion. You have vectors of sensation. Just keep it physical that people don't want to feel. I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to feel anger. I want to feel se sexual energy, but only in a certain way. So there's all, there's all of this unconscious resistance to not allow these other sensations to move, which means those sensations are numb. They're numbed out. They're not online. In a certain sense, those vectors of energy are dead. They're deadened. There's some part of us that is not alive, which is why I call the work core level awakening. You're returning to life. You're waking back up. And so when we can wake up these energies and learn to, or these sensations, we can wake up these sensations and allow them to flow again. Our energy returns, our vitality returns, our inspiration comes back. It's not some magic trick. It's just probably more like a child feels because they haven't been censored yet, but they don't know how to live in the world yet. So it's not that we're returning to a childhood freedom. We're, we're, and we're not returning to anything. We're awakening to adult freedom, which is what you're talking about. A fully adult realized freedom that's embodied. So as we're looking at it, this is a big pursuit and it, it's a lifetime pursuit because it integrates the spiritual. And as long as we're here, we're learning more things. So um, when we get embodied, all of a sudden we really become available and present to the love that's around us, to my beautiful daughters, to my wife, to this beautiful man in front of me. I can be here and appreciate you as much as, much as I can right now. That's a big thing. <laughs> That's a massive thing. I'm, I'm not stuck in my head running through an agenda I have. I'm, I'm wanting to enjoy the microphones and the, these cool chairs we're sitting in. And just like, wow, this is fun. This new room I've never been in. Things that are kind of delightful. Nothing really special other than being alive, which is, of course, incredibly special. It's a big attainment. To me, it's something worthy of pursuing because we don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to get, we don't have to go anywhere or be away from anything. We get to be fully here. Not in the Ramdas sense of, you know, being here now. It's being here now with everything that is also here. I didn't sleep too well last night, so my eyes feel a little tired. So I'm with that, you know, a little bit of anxiety because I have some business decisions I got to deal with. And that's here too. I'm learning from you and your expertise around in your presence is very refined. And the way you listen pulls out nuance in me. So I'm really enjoying that. Things I've realized in this conversation that I've literally never realized. It's quite a thing to be embodied. I mean, to really, to pursue it as a, as a path, not just, oh, I'm a soul in a body is like not really here because my body's so traumatized, you know, and, and it hasn't been worked with. The one thing I do want to add to it, and I say this often, is that if you actually don't work on these things, they don't heal. Just because you were born doesn't mean you get a, pass to freedom. It's the sobering truth of the work. It's just, you can progress in certain ways. You can, like if all I did was pursue meditative work, but not this work, 
my development would be so lopsided. And if all I did was like psycho-spiritual work without meditative work, then I'd also be lopsided. And if I haven't looked at my sexuality and sexual predilections and sexual traumas, then that area wouldn't be developed. And if I didn't know how to handle the energy of money, et cetera, and so on, right? We're being asked to work on everything, not necessarily all at once or in any particular sequence, but nevertheless, the path is, is much bigger than we maybe want it to be. You know, if I just, if I just meditate, maybe that'll get it all done for me. No, it won't. I can tell you plenty of teachers who were considered fully realized beings who fucked up sexually, fucked up financially, traumatized the hell out of people. Like I wouldn't call that a fully integrated, embodied, free human being. I'd say they maybe realized God fully, but not without any integrity or dignity. And the part, actually part of our work is to call that out and say, that's not, that's not the full path. It's just part of it. You know, it's, it's one, it's an important part, but there's these other parts are equally as important. So embodiment is a big topic. It's a big pursuit. I think you arrive at a place when you're ready for it, you experience enough pain. I know some folks like a lot of their work is kind of journaling based, talk therapy based, and that's great work. At a certain point, we have to take it deeper. We take it to where it's still vibrating as a wound in the body. I can write about it, I can talk about it, but can I speak it? And not just intellectually, but let that vibration come out of me and let it tremble me back to life. Which is what happens in sessions when I'm working with men or women for that matter. There's often a tremble that will, when something's releasing, the body will shake. Whether it's shaking in anger or fear, the body will shake, the tears will come, the lips will tremble, the fists will clench. The moment where it was all held in and forced into a frozen state, it comes back into being, back into embodiment. So this thing you're talking about, gentle man, I, I find it really beautiful. It's, it's more like what that points to for me is this refined skill to, it's not necessarily learn in an academic sense, but learn in a felt sense, the sense of interioception, to feel inside yourself into, it's like a way of moving between your dimensionality. I'm moving from my, my sweetness and softness into my firmness and clarity into my shame, into my sensuality. There's a like a refined quality to that. There's a, as a skillfulness there. It could be more like Qigong or Tai Chi, or it could be more like Aikido, or it could be more like Jiu Jitsu. It's a, it's a martial art of consciousness that I, I feel like you're pointing to that in the way you describe this maturing of men, women for that matter. I like that. The way you describe it, that's what I sense. There's a dignity to it, you know, it's dignified. I actually, I love that word dignity. I think dignity is such an important part of embodiment and being alive. It's actually something I think when people talk about what they see in wild animals, to me, I describe that quality of being as dignity because there's a certain way when you're embodied and when you are doing the thing that you do and you're doing the thing that your animal does, there's this present quality. One of the ways I would describe that is dignity. And we see how, you know, if you, if you take a being and you break their will, tame them, there's a loss of something. And I think a lot of what is lost is that dignity, that feeling of I stand up straight and I fill this space with a fierceness 
So I love that you picked out that word. That's one of my favorite words. Again, there's so many different points in there that I want to hook into and explore. But one of the things I'm most curious about that you've touched on a couple of times, I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about is shame. You know, you've talked about clean shame. I'm so like, that's such a cool phrase, clean shame. What does that mean? This is an interesting one. Like Brene Brown talks about guilt and shame and she won't talk about shame as a healthy thing. She kind of relegates it to something that's not actually that useful per se, as far as like a healthy version of it. And and for me, I draw a distinction there to say, there's an unhealthy kind of shame, which most of us know, because that's all, all we know is that, oh man, I, I made a mistake with you. I, I promised you I'd do something and I didn't do it. And in fact, not only did I didn't do it, I did something to hurt you. Maybe I didn't mean to, Maybe I kind of did, but I don't want to admit it to you. So for a flash, just for a moment, I feel shame, like I fucked up. And, and what I did in that moment is I actually identified with it, like, oh man, I'm such a shitty friend. Like I kind of fucked you over, Arjuna. And rather than feel that, I go, well, who cares? He'll get over it. Maybe it's a little thing and you would get over it because we care about each other. It's not a big deal, but it's a little dig. It's a little like a little wound between us. Not big enough for us to not be friends, but big enough to cause a little bit of doubt of how much you can trust me. And I just walk that off. Or maybe you confront me, hey, Luke, that kind of hurt. And I go, well, you know, it's not a big deal, Arjuna. Like, just can you let it go? And you're like, well, I like Luke. So yeah, I guess I can let it go. But I don't clean it up with you. I don't resolve it. So you still don't fully trust me. You trust me, but not fully. So that's unhealthy shame. A few things are happening there. One is, I'm identified with the action. The reason why I don't want to own it is because I know I fucked up. And I think at some level, I, I, I'm bad. Like I'm, it hits some core of me that believes I am not an integrous or a person of dignity. Because at some level, I'm agreeing that something's wrong with me. And I'm kind of in a way enrolling you into that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a piece of shit. Not fully, not all of me, but deep down, there's this part of me that thinks I'm fucking worthless. So you're not trusting me, but I'm also at a deeper level wanting you to not trust me. I'm wanting you to at some deep implicit level agree that I'm not all good. And it's an interesting energetic game we play with shame. As we demean ourselves, we go through a loss of dignity. We also enroll others in it and we all do it. And part of why we do it is at the core of the psyche or the core of the, in Sanskrit, the ahamkara or the ego, which just means the identity point. At the core of that, at the, at the core of our individual sense of self, there's this knot or this mala called anavamala, which it means translates into I'm, something's wrong with me. I'm, I'm not worthy of life. It's not a belief. Some people say, oh, you got to think more positively. It's not a belief. It's a feeling. It vibrates the core of who we are. It's not excuse me, it's not the core being of us. It's right above that. It's it's this individual sense. And in fact, we build a lot of our personality around this core, like me looking in the mirror at this ugly kid. That was all unworthiness manifesting as belief, but it was coming from this, this vibratory core, which is again, why core level awakening is so important and why working on shame is critical to heal Anavamala, unworthiness, and this sense that I've done something wrong or that I, I am wrong. I am fundamentally flawed and fucked up. 
I don't belong and I'm all alone, which is what I was experiencing in college, right? Like I'm feeling alone. And this is how, how this sense of unworthiness grows over time. We feel like we don't belong in our peer group, which is how I felt at 13. And then in our 20s, we start to feel like I'm all alone. Where do I belong? Where, do, where is my place in this world? I guess I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps like my dad taught me. And I have to fight for every fucking inch of my life, which is what he taught me to do. And it's this kind of Americanism of like um, being staunchly independent, fierce, and we all have our, our plot of land with our white picket fence around us. And we're going to pursue what is our God-given right to have land liberty, justice, family things, and kind of move through this cycle of things and accumulation. This huge opportunity is being missed, which is the deepest, most profound level of trust and connection, which can only come from what I call healthy shame, which is that if I did something to hurt you, big or small, my face goes red because I know I've been caught red-handed. And rather than escape from that feeling and try to dismiss it, or become aggressive or passive aggressive with you, try to like not make it mean anything, or maybe I'll blame you, or maybe I'll just blame myself. I'm unworthy, you're unworthy, we're both pieces of shit. Can we just let go? Okay, let's just let go. But nothing is restored yet. We're both agreeing to be sloppy with each other. We're both agreeing to not fully love ourselves and each other. That's not a great agreement. That's not a great way to build a powerful relationship. No one likes to work on this, me included. It just doesn't feel good. It feels terrible. I have to feel that I hurt you. I, I have to open my heart and go, fuck, I hurt my friend. And I have to feel these moments of like seeing you in pain, that I disappointed you, right? It's like my, my adult childhood. I caused disappointment. I maybe even caused a lot of hurt. And I have to take enough breaths for you to see that I get how much pain I've caused you. And why do I do that? Well, because I love you. I care about you. And so it's not that I'm making myself less than you or I'm being this punished little boy who's, you know, it's more like guilt as you punish yourself over and over. And I give you the chance, Arjuna, to say, Luke, yeah, that hurt. I don't beat you to the punch and say, I'm so sorry I hurt you. And what do you need to do? And can I restore this for you, Arjuna? No, I'm going to own it. And then I'm going to pause and let you share. Yeah, Luke, that really hurt. And thank you for saying that. It means a lot. And I love you. Thank you. A few things are happening. One is that I'm feeling healthy. I'm feeling remorse, meaning I'm letting my heart open and letting myself awaken to what has occurred, whether it was intentional or not. Here's the crucial piece. I'm also not taking it on as a fault. Because if I did something that hurt you or said something that hurt you or whatever the circumstances, I'm not going, I'm a bad person. I'm going, ah, I did something. I said something that was harmful, hurtful. But at my core, that doesn't make me bad. It just makes me human. I'm learning. I'm growing. And I'm liberating myself to learn from this experience, not to condemn myself to serve a sentence, a servitude of inadequacy for fucking lifetimes because I didn't take the trash out and I said I would, right? It's like so many relationships, they end at the fucking dishes. Like you didn't do the dishes, Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, fucking, I'm such a piece of shit. Oh. It's like, what the fuck? You just didn't do the goddamn dishes. Like it's okay. And this goes both ways. Like if, like you could shame me, like Luke, you fucking asshole. You didn't do the dishes. Like, whoa, Arjuna, back off. 
you're pushing you're pushing your aggression into me you're trying to trigger some kind of unworthiness in me this is like a huge dynamic in any relationship whether it's friends or intimate is we get aggressive with each other and anytime aggression comes into the field you've lost the heart of the matter so clean anger is different you could be like luke dude i have all this on my plate and you said you'd do the dishes and you didn't man what the heck you're angry with me but your heart's still in it or you'd be like dude what the fuck you prick like i'm like dude, where'd your love go for me? Like, am I a piece of shit all of a sudden? So there's just so much growth in here, right? Like we just kill each other with shame. Shame is the source of all brokenness in this world and why healthy shame is, is really the remedy. And it's the most difficult feeling to access. Feel healthy remorse, not identify with the action, identify as being the problem, but just, oh, I did that. I said that. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. It's this massive exploration that's, I don't know if it's advanced. It's just challenging. It's the forever work of relationship. It's not something you attain. You just recognize, ah, here's this kind of reluctant friend. Hmm. Reluctant friend. Wow. Wow. I love that. Yeah, that's that's resonating for me on so many levels. There's a couple of things I just want to pick out from that that I heard that were really fascinating to me. One of them is that it's like shame is tapping into that fundamental quality of I don't deserve my life. What? Tell me again, what's the name of that? Anavamala. Anavamala. Yeah, A-N-A-V-A-N-A-V-A-M-A-L-A, Anavamala, yeah. Mm. That's so amazing because I do think one of the most insidious parts of shame, like you are highlighting, is that we we think it's us or we think like this is a fundamental quality of who I am is that I'm messed up instead of acknowledging this is another one of these archetypal places that the ego wants to go, regardless of time and place, who knows why, <laughs> but this is just part of the human experience that we, we grapple with this quality of being. And so I love how you're talking about it's not that we become this thing or it's not that we even are this thing. It's just that we tend. It's a, we tend towards it, just like we tend towards all these other aspects of life. And I love that you're giving us a vocabulary for what do we do about it and how do we show up and, and how do we be embodied, right? And how do we yeah have heartfelt relationships through that, knowing that it's going to be there and, and working with it. That's so powerful. Thank you for giving me, you've given me such a deeper vocabulary around shame, which is in, in and of itself, that's worth this conversation, just that one piece of it. There's a vocabulary that came to me around shame that I just wanted to highlight, which is I think of earned shame and unearned shame, which isn't that I'm trying to categorically describe what shame can be, but I think that there is not doing the dishes I think of as being an earned shame, right? So that's something where you're saying, you know what, somewhere in me, I acknowledge that there's an agreement, which I didn't keep my end of. We can get skillful in how we navigate that, but I think that it's important to have that moment of shame. It's important to have that moment of, hmm, like I'm out of alignment. And then if you're skillfully able to work through it, then that's great. It's a reinforcement of a relationship, even if it's just with yourself. I think of unearned shame as being the shame that other people put on you because of their own shame. That's shit like my older brother was always criticizing me. And so when I do something that reminds me of his criticism, then I, f I hear his voice being like, you're a piece of shit. You fucked up. You're not living up to my standard of who I want you to be. That is really when I hear people talking about toxic shame, that's what I think of. 
the only sense of integrity to the self in that relationship is if we can remember who we are in relationship to it. But the actual shame is it's like peer pressure. It's just like other people projecting onto us. I think that's really critical because I think one has to work with those different types of shame differently. And I think that when we, if we're doing a good job of working with the unearned shame, then I think when the, when the earned shame comes up, we don't have the baggage. Instead of, you know, when you're like, hey, you didn't do the dishes, instead of me hearing my older brother be like, hey, you're a piece of shit, I can just be more in like, hmm, wow, I just stepped out of my agreement. And, and it can kind of start and end there. Especially with men, shame can be such a damaging emotion for men. Because what my observation is that the way that women are socialized in our Western American culture, they'll tend to, if, if there is a, a violence or an aggression to shame, it'll tend to get directed inward. It'll kind of start and stop with, I'm a piece of shit. And what I notice is that it's a more male socialized tendency to be like, who can I take this out on? Or I have to punch a wall and break my hand affects the world, right? I have to harm someone or something to work with the shame. And so I think that's why it's particularly important for men. I mean, everyone has to do the work, but I feel like whatever that is, whatever that impulse is to like lash out, I think is doubly important to keep an eye on and, and work with. One of the remaining things that I wanted to bring up was what other specific suffering do you see men coming up against in your work? That's something I really have a curiosity around, like when people come in and they're either lying on the table and you're doing body work with them, or when you're doing more of your core level awakening style of work. What are some of the points that you see that men or people who are socialized as male are consistently coming up against? You and I can unpack this together. There's a feeling that I see, I want to say almost every man I work with go through, particularly if it's their if it's their first experience with this work, it's like a longing to be all that they are in the world, which includes some of their heartbreak. When I think of all the men I've worked with, what's come forward first is this heartbreak of not being able to express their longing for closeness, their hurt. Men get hurt. Men feel hurt. <laughs> Just like women feel hurt, men feel hurt. It's the same. It's the same hurt. Just because you're in a body this way or that way or identify a particular way. The hurt is the same. That's why quickly this work transcends gender or gender identification because the wounding is just deeper than that. The socialization guides the wounds in particular ways, but most men experience tremendous relief when they can finally cry fully in front of other men and not be judged or shamed or called a pussy or a faggot or a fucking weakling but rather celebrated that their like their heart can arrive back to the surface they don't have to hide they don't have to suppress part of their being they don't have to just be brawny or just be kind and sweet they get to release this longing just to fucking be all that they are to hurt to love to have passion to have interests so many men's interests are muted they're doing what their father told them to do or they're doing the opposite of what their father told them to do or they're doing what their partner wants them to do, but they're not in touch with what they really want. So they have these outlets that are like aggressive or these outlets that are hidden, but society hasn't created a space for them just to like, this guy loves to fucking collect model trains. He's just crazy about it. He loves it. It's so fun. It gives him so much joy, but 
people make fun of him so he ditched that hobby. That the little boy can come out fully and celebrate and the man can be there. And that feeling is always there, Arjuna. I, I see that in every session, especially if it's the first. There's, And s- some men can't always get to it in the first session. It's just so scary to like break open their longing for connection and to just say what they really want, whether it's financial or sexual or relational, or spiritual, to really just admit it. They're afraid they're going to hurt people. You know, we're, as men, we're all charged to protect. And so if we say something that's going to hurt someone, if it's going to hurt a woman especially, men either won't say it or they get really aggressive and they dominate and control. And that's like rape culture is like this thwarted version of men's true desire as they, they then get violent. What's really longing to come forward is just their passion and, and their love and their, their drive, you know, healthy drive, healthy penetrative energy healthy longing. Like you think of the erection as like this penetrative thing. Like this is about penetrating into a vagina or some kind of hole or whatever it might be. It's not about that. It's not about putting a phallus into something. It's about longing for connection and longing for reunion and longing to see and be seen. Women have it too. The structure of that is irrelevant to the matter. It's the longing to fully be lit with one another around what we care about most, to be raw about it, to be real and not to, not to diminish it or take its intensity down because we're afraid we're going to hurt someone when what we end up doing is hurting everyone, most of all ourselves, but really everyone deeply because our full power isn't being released into the world. It's being muted and men are deadened as a result. And so when a man is invited to come alive, and to put to death, death itself, and to return to, to his kind of radical passion, something very benign, something very extraordinary, whatever it might be, you see a man that comes fully alive. And I believe the work you and I are doing is we're shifting culture so that that can happen more in a safe, permitted way. Unfortunately, we right from the outset, we teach little baby boys to be tough to not cry, to be little bodybuilders, to start protecting everyone from emotion. I mean, what the fuck is that? I mean, I'm actually pissed off about it. What the fuck are we protecting people from? You think crying is going to kill you? Do you think being angry is going to kill you? You think feeling your sexual energy is going to kill you? You think feeling shame is going to kill you? It's the fucking opposite. You know, it, it liberates you back into life. It's just our culture is so nascent. It's so young. It's so undeveloped around letting emotion flow, right? All of Judeo-Christian culture is like, let's, let's temper it. This emotion is negative. Let's just be kind and sweet. And it's just where we've been taught this way. So yeah, it's fucking incredible to have a man come into himself to get embodied around this core feeling of their longing for life. You know, it's, it's just radical. I love the passion in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love how you're, you're highlighting the facts that one of the like matter qualities I'm seeing there is the quality of bigness. Yes, right? that's it. And presence, Yes, right? And, and this is something which men, especially because of our physiologies and especially because of um, certain paths that have been cut in culture, like we have such a, a potential for bigness. Yes, healthy bigness. It can be if it's channeled in, uh, in, in mature ways. If we take that exuberance that we have in childhood and we temper it 
Luke, as a parent, I'm sure you're walking through this right now, right? Of like, how do I encourage the bigness of my children without that bigness being something that's constricting other people or hurting other people? How do I help move them through selfish qualities while keeping those self-actualizing qualities. And so that's something that I think men are really needing to work out is how do I hold my bigness in a way that's allowing me to be passionate without harming other people. And I, I think of that as part of the unique suffering of people who are raised as men and socialized as male. People of every gender will come up against that. But I think there's this potential for violence and this history of violence which is such a man thing. Where does that come from? Again, it's hard to answer that question, just acknowledging it and what do we, how do we work with that? I think is this really amazing part of what you're bringing. There are a lot of movements moving to like deny that or repress that or be like, well, men just need to not be as big. And I think that part of maturity in this time for men is there is a medicine in that. There are these certain ways in which we're used to being big where we need to step back and actually allow space for other people to be big too. So, you know, maybe there are certain ways in which men are used to dominating the conversation where the most growthful thing that they can do for themselves and their relationships is listen more. There's that part of it. And then there's this other part of what I see you talking about. And then men also finding their space where this is where I can take up space. I've left space here and now here's my healthy way of like stepping into the space that I want to embody. That relationship, I think, is, is so much a part of the medicine of what men are working with right now. Yeah, I love this, this metaphor that you're talking about with the sexual energy, right? And how men are longing for connection. I just want to keep saying that. Yeah, I do too. Um, I feel that so we could chant that. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Because it really is. It's, you know, it, it, comes, it comes down to that. If men don't have healthy models for what connection looks like, then it, it starts to look invasive, but it really doesn't have to be. Yeah. I want to make a quick comment on that because I work with women too exclusively and I don't lead women's groups, but I do core level awakening for women. And there's a similar feeling that comes forward in women, but it's it's loaded with a, a little bit more confusion. Like women are longing for connection too. And they're longing for connection with other women. And they're longing for connection with men if they're attracted to men. But because they're not getting a man's full heart or presence, because a lot of men don't have a lot of that online, they have parts of it that we've spoken to, women are kind of like fed up. They're like, oh, I'm not kind of getting what I want from my man or from men. I mean, I talk to women all the time that are like, where are the men? Where are the men? Like, you know, deeper soulful women are like, they just won't, they just won't date. I know so many women that are like, just not in, I'm not into relationship. They do their own thing. They're creative. They put their creativity into other things because they're not being met. So women have this longing. There's a frustration. There's kind of a letting go that they have. And I think why I see women discover that's really beautiful is they discover authentic sisterhood. Moving out of this milieu of competitiveness with other women, like we're competing for men's attention or we're competing for men's resources, to break out of that social structure and into like, God, it's so nice to have a deep female friend that I can trust. And to see women get that, like a lot of women have a lot of wounding around female friendships, competitiveness, judgment, pettiness, cattiness. And 
you know, to see a women's, a group of women come together because men kind of, they can form friendships in a way that are like sports oriented, kind of a brotherhood thing. For women, that doesn't come as naturally in, in social situations. This competitiveness comes in. So I, I get to see women go through this metamorphosis in their group dynamic, this longing for connection and they find it with each other. And in a certain way, they're kind of hanging out there, rooting, rooting for the men to, to get it, you know, like, come on, come on, guys. Like, we, we love you and we, we, we want you and we want your passion. Like, women want to feel men's passion. They don't want to feel men's violence. They don't want to feel men's dullness and asleepness. An awakened woman wants an awakened man who's like fully there with his heart and his passion. I mean, there's no, there's no greater turn on than that. That's why like in the dating world, the authentic dating world, it's all about like, dude, just share your passion with the woman, share your insecurity, share your vulnerability. A woman who's awakened loves that. And it's not a strategy, it's, it's the pathway to connection. So just a little nuance I wanted to add. It's a little different, but it's so connected. Yeah, I love how you're highlighting that it's not that straight women don't want men. They want men, yeah. right? They just, they, they want to be met and they want to yeah. be met in a respectful way. The work of, of self-respect is also the work of earning other people's respect. And the work of self-love is also the work of loving with other people. These character developing paths and tools, they radiate out into our lives. They affect all of our relationships. And, and then in turn, those relationships affect culture. And I'm moving towards closing out here. Um, you know, we this has been such a rich conversation and I feel like we could just go on about so many of these things. But one of the bigger points that I just want to remind people of is, is I think a lot of people at the moment are feeling this pressure of how do I make a difference? How do I change the world? Things are moving so fast and I feel so powerless. And I just want to remind people listening to this that the power of one relationship just radiates into so many things, right? If you're having an imperfect but beautiful and functional relationship with your partner, your kids are seeing that. And that's like a whole cosmology of relationship that they're growing up into. And how's that going to radiate into their lives? Or if you, Luke, are showing up in general in your relationships with a certain quality, Luke's really got this particular kindness, you know, this particular adult male kindness that he has dialed in that radiates out and people see that. And then that in turn, it affects all of these relationships in small but important ways that go out and reinforce the notion that men can be kind or that men can be assertive and kind. And so this work, even though it plays out on a personal level, it has a cultural reverberation. And furthermore, it's my belief that, and, and you're highlighting this too, that people are so hungry for this. These straight women that you're talking to are so hungry for a man who's willing to do any amount of this. And so it's like, it's not only does this stuff radiate out, but there's like a hunger in this time for that work to be done. And so when we're doing any amount of this work, we have the wind at our back and we help that wind. When we step into it, we help to keep that momentum. So yeah, I, 
I love this stuff. Thank you so much, Luke, for joining us. Before we get out of here, there's a few things I just want um, to make sure that people know about you. So the first thing is that you also have a podcast. Do you want to tell us about that real quick? Yeah, Luke Adler Healing Podcast. It's on Spotify and, and Apple Music. I'm talking about similar content. Kind of everything we spoke about today is really what's on the table, what I'm interested in talking about. So you can find me there. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and then you. Um, are you are you present on social media or how else can people plug into I'm what I'm on you Instagram at, at that same handle, uh, Luke Adler Healing. I, I've done some with it, but I've been dormant for a few months. So uh, you can find me there. And then my website, LukeAdlerHealing.com. You can find my events and my practice and all of the things that I that I do. Awesome. Thank you so much, Luke. I really, really appreciate your time. It's wonderful spending time with a gentleman such as yourself. Thank you, Arjuna. You're, you're a delight. And working with you in your, your awareness is so vast and deep. It really is an invitation for such deep exploration. It's probably this has been one of my favorite conversations I've had uh, in a long time. Awesome. I'm glad that we could share that. Likewise. All right. All cheers. Right. Cheers.